Thank you, as always, for tuning in for another episode of the Dunker Punks podcast. I'm excited to let you know about a new series of podcast episodes that will be coming across your feed periodically, starting right now. There is no bigger social justice issue than climate change and care for the environment. Our world is groaning under the pressure of centuries of human industrialization and Western exploitation, and we're already starting to see the consequences even if it's just the beginning of the devastation that might come. Global temperatures are rising, and so are global sea levels. Around the world, important and beloved species are nearing extinction, and ecosystems are shrinking or vanishing altogether. But some of the harshest consequences of climate change are for human beings, and particularly people living in the global south. While people who live in wealthy Western countries like the United States are disproportionately responsible for the emission of greenhouse gases, it's people in the global South, mostly people of color and indigenous folks, who are hurting from climate change first and worst. That's why climate change is first and foremost a justice issue. It's about the choices that we make here in countries like the United States and how the consequences of those actions don't always relay back to us but instead bear down on people who we don't know. It's about what predominantly white people are doing to devastate indigenous ways of life, from the Arctic to the Amazon, while communities of color from Bangladesh to Uganda deal with displacement and depression. It's about the women who have to travel just a little bit further every year to draw water and collect firewood, the danger to their bodies and livelihoods increasing as their journey gets longer and longer. If it's a justice issue, that makes it a faith issue, too. This is a series about what people of faith, starting with the Church of the Brethren, can and must do to address climate change and environmental exploitation. 
In particular, this series focuses on the New Community Project, an organization rooted in a brethren point of view that emphasizes sustainable living and community and aims to break down the barriers between us here in the United States and those living around the world who see the primary effects of climate change. It gives members of the American church a chance to see what people living in indigenous communities and the global south are doing to model sustainable living and help us know and understand the people for whom our actions have dire consequences. My first interview is with David Radcliffe, who once led the Church of the Brethren's Peace Witness and went on to found and lead the New Community Project. I hope you enjoyed this first in a series of interviews about climate justice, sustainable living, and the global community that people of faith have an obligation to preserve and engage. Uh, I am David Radcliffe, I'm the director of New Community Project. Call ourselves a small nonprofit organization with a big goal to change the world. And for my own self, I um, sort of oversee the programs. I mean, we have sustainable living centers up in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and Starksburg, Vermont, that are pretty much self-maintaining. I have great people. We have great people uh, kind of coordinating those programs. So it's I have I manage with a light touch, you might say. Um, for myself, uh, I do a lot of traveling and talking in the USA. Um, probably speak I don't know 150 times a year in schools and colleges and uh, churches and stuff like that. Uh, basically anywhere that any bell sits still for 45 minutes and have a discussion. Uh, and so uh, I also lead learning tours. Um, these are our trips to other part of the world, uh, basically where we have partnerships, uh, Southern Asia, um, East Africa, uh, the a- Ecuadorian Amazon, up to the Arctic out to the Diné Reservation in New Mexico. Uh, and my, my friend, colleague Tom Benevento leads one down to the Dominican Republic every year. And so the learning, that's, that's another kind of a key part of my work, I guess. I lead four to six of those a year, um, taking people of all ages, uh, to go visit these places and to live and learn, basically. It's not a mission trip, not a service trip, really. Uh, we're there to, Meet the people that we work with. Uh, we we fund projects, you know, girls' education, women's development, reforestation. So we want to meet those people, learn from them, and uh, build friendships with them, kind of show solidarity with them. Um, so that's and then I raise money for the organization. I mean, I send out two fundraising letters a year um, and post some stuff on Facebook with some funding op- opportunities for people. Um, so that's basically my work. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, we want to talk mostly about New Community Project, um, and that's what this whole series of several episodes for the podcast is going to be about. Great. Um, but I also w- was curious about hearing a little bit about your background before New Community Project. How did you get involved with uh, environmental activism and social justice work to begin with? Well, it all started <laughs> back when I was like in my early 30s. I took a trip to Central America uh, in the mid-80s during the war years down there. And, you know, Honduras for a week, Guatemala for a week. And I saw stuff you only hear about in Sunday school, refugees and poverty, hunger, warfare, our own country involved and not always in the best way. And it really changed my life. And so um, I came back from that experience and organized my own trip down uh, maybe two years later to some people I'd met in Honduras. They facilitated it. And so I gathered a group of people and uh, 
soon after that, a job came open at the Church of the Brethren at their headquarters up in Illinois uh, to be the director of the peace office. And so I applied and um, got the job. And so for the next 15 years, I worked for the Church of the Brethren um, in the peace office, managing peace programs, hunger relief and environmental programs. And so that was it was great work. I mean, I loved that job. I got to know lots of people around the uh, country, but also around the world uh, through that position. And then that all changed uh, in about 16 years ago now uh, when they did some downsizing and offered me a different kind of job. And I, it wasn't really for me. And so I and some others started a new community project. And we kind of caught a wave. There was a lot of people in the Brethren Network that were disenchanted that the church was downsizing, uh, actually downsizing the peace office as we were going to war with Iraq. And so there was some disgruntlement about that. And so a lot of interest in supporting new energy in a new direction. And so really we um, we had a lot of support from the get go and really have never looked back. And uh, and I'm, you know, and looking looking back on that. I thought I would work for the Church of the Brethren my whole life. I thought I'd retire there. But uh, this has provided lots of new opportunities with new community projects, especially in relation to colleges and schools, uh, because back in those days, they pay you to go visit church people and youth meetings and that sort of stuff, and that's all fine. But there's a whole other group of people out there that don't darken the door of the church that are very interested in this stuff, caring for the earth, uh, seeking fairness for people. And so it has given me and our organization a lot more opportunities to engage that crowd. And so that's really, I don't know, in some ways, the biggest audience we have uh, is in those kinds of settings. Great. If you had to um, estimate how much of your audience or your support base or the people that work with NCP come from a Church of the Brethren background and how many come from outside of that? Mm. Well, those are kind of two different questions. The audience, as I said, I speak to so many school groups every year in college groups. That's probably the biggest number of people I talk to. We don't get a lot of money from them. <laughs> you know, they, they're interested. They sign up on the mailing list. But, you know, very rarely do you get any kind of contribution. So a lot of the support comes and I, really and I do get into probably. I don't know, 20 Church of the Brethren congregations a year. I don't That's just that's just a rough guess. And so I do have a lot of engagement with Church of the Brethren people. And I get to the annual conference and do age group stuff and all that. Um, but uh, probably uh, maybe two thirds of our support comes from Brethren related sources. That's just a guess. And then some other people who learn about us online or through friends or whatever will send us some money occasionally. We occasionally get money from a, a foundation of some kind or a large a person who's got a large amount of money to do something with, and they will give us some money for special projects and things. Uh, but in terms of our core budget, the people we count on uh, to give us money just to move on with life and to do our work, uh, Brethren Church of the Brethren people and congregations are actually very important to us. So uh, I know that you mentioned a number of programs that New Community Project offers. Um, two major ones that we are featuring on this uh, series are your sustainability centers, your sustainable living centers, and uh, yeah. your learning tours. Yeah. Um, and so it's clear that New Community Project has its hands in a lot of different areas and does a lot of uh, various work. Uh, at the beginning of the project, was there a certain element of those that 
uh, you first went with, or did you kind of have ideas for those multiple programs from the beginning? Yeah, there were. You know, I knew from the get-go that I wanted to do something like learning tours. I'd been, I had that experience myself back in the 80s, and then I had organized when I was with the Church of the Brethren, had done faith expeditions, we called them back then, getting people into these settings. And I knew I wanted to do that because that experiential learning piece is very critical to what we're trying to do. We're trying to change hearts and minds. I mean, we're trying to affect people on a deep level, and there's no substitute for a personal encounter to make that happen, whether it's with the creation around us or whether with our neighbors or just the realities of our world, climate change and all that stuff and what is impacting people. And so I knew we wanted to do that. So from the beginning, I had to find a new word for it because I, I didn't want to go with something like faith expeditions. First of all, it was already kind of taken. Uh, but I, I, I knew that we would in, we would. Um, we would be associated with people that weren't of the church tradition or religious tradition of any kind. And so I needed some word, uh, some phrase that would uh, capture, invite them as well as our people that we associate with religious traditions. So that's the learning tours. And they, you know, like I said, that's been a big part of our work. And the other, th- one other thing that I really wanted to include in, in what we, whatever we did was, well, I wanted people to give it, I wanted to provide them with opportunities to respond. And so uh, one of the things I've always been kind of uh, compelled by is the lack of education opportunities for girls and economic opportunities for women. And I felt like that would also be something of interest and would draw people in our network because they, you know, who doesn't want to see a girl go to school? Who doesn't want to see a woman have an economic opportunity uh, to, in, for her own self-esteem, for the betterment of her family? Uh, in fact, you know, you're, you're reading that uh, in terms of even climate change, those two things, empowering women and educating girls, are two of the top ten of the hundred things in the book Drawdown. Two of the top ten are those two things for affecting climate change. So all kinds of ripple effects. Uh, from girls' education and empowering women. So I knew I wanted to do those two things. I have some experiential learning component and then to do give people an opportunity to respond. And along with them soon after that, maybe I don't know how early on in the program, maybe very early, we started a reforestation program as well. Uh, and I also knew that who doesn't want to see trees planted? And we have responsible partners that we're developed over the years that can do this for, you know, kind of for a song, really. I just sent a guy... How much? $1,500 yesterday or something by Western Union in Myanmar. He's going to use uh, about 500 of that to plant 5,000 trees in Myanmar. And so, you know, 10 cents a tree. What's not to like about that? Plus, it's a badly deforested area. So anyway, so those those two things. And then, you know, the idea of the sustainable living centers, it wasn't an idea. I didn't. That was never part of our plan. I mean, it should have been. Maybe we don't really do plans. Mm-hmm. Things just sort of evolve. And so, out of the blue, I got a call from Tom Benevento. We'd been in NCP had been around for two or three years, and I've knew, known Tom for my work in the Church of the Brethren. He'd done work in Central America, so we were kind of friends. And but we never really had done work together directly. And he called me. He was moving back from Guatemala. He wanted to do something kind of on the ground here, like he'd been doing in Guatemala, sustainable stuff and changing society and that sort of thing. And so he proposed uh, working with NCP and coming to Harrisonburg, Virginia, to start that center. And so that kind of came out of the blue, but it was perfect because an organization, it was up to that point, it's me and my laptop, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of the organization. And I was traveling and talking and leading some learning tours and stuff, but there wasn't a lot of kind of facts on the ground. And this gave us sort of an embodiment of the things we are talking about all the time. 
just in a very local setting, um, very compelling what the work they're doing environmentally in terms of social justice, in terms of witness advocacy in the local community, attending, you know, church, town council meetings, building a greenway, all that stuff. And then about five or six years ago, I got another phone call out of the blue from a guy who had Tom as a camp counselor when the guy was a ninth grader up in New York State. And he'd had some changes in his life and world and had found his diary from way back in those days by just by looking through some stuff and saw Tom's name and thought, I wonder what that guy's doing now because he was so cool. And so he, he found out what Tom was doing, and he decided he wanted to do the same thing because the work he was doing with an environmental group in Vermont wasn't as progressive as or, I don't know, assertive or out there on the edge like he wanted to be. So he calls me up and then all of a sudden we've got an outpost in Vermont. <laughs> so and it's a, it's an amazing. We had no really hardly any connections in New England. And here we've got this center there that's making a big impact where it is. So that's kind of I mean, that's kind of how we have how our thing has has developed from kind of original ideas for what we want to include and then things that just come on in a beautiful way without really any planning. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in uh, your story that you had been working for the peace office for the church of the brethren. Um, after downsizing, you moved uh, into the new community or to start the new community project. Um, and you, you mentioned that part of the feeling for moving away from the church of the brethren was um, feeling disaffected that they had downsized their peace office right when the Iraq war was starting. So then it's interesting to me that what you go on to do is is found a group that really works more on environmental and social justice issues. Um, how was how was that connection for you? Why did you move from peace at, at a time of escalating war into environment and earth and social justice? Yeah, that's a fine question. Um, well, I mean, back in, in the, when I was with the Church of the Brethren, of course, part of the, the Brethren Witness Office was environmental and hunger relief, as well as peace. And, you know, all that stuff is bound up together. We're not going to live in a world at peace until we figure out how to manage our environment in, in a careful way until people have fairness. I mean, those are in some ways are the bedrock of peacemaking in our world today. Climate change is going to, it's already causing problems in terms of interpersonal as well as inner, inner, uh, inner societal problems. I mean, the, the thing in Darfur in South Sudan, they say was largely related to drought and climate change. The Syrian civil war was related to climate change and people looking for food and not getting it from the government. And so until we, until we address these things in a meaningful way, there's not going to be peace in this world. And so that's that's kind of and I guess I I also see the, the justice piece. I mean, you know, you've got a lot of disaffected young people around the world until they have opportunity. They're going to look for the easiest way to earn a buck and to put on a uniform as one of those and to join some militia someplace. And so, I mean, that's that's kind of why we're doing it. And we see this as in fact, we call one aspect of our program peace through justice. So we have the three pieces of our program, peace through justice, which is the stuff I'm just talking about, uh, care for earth, earth care or creation care, and then experiential learning. So we still see it as the core. It's not it's just not that we're trying to send delegations to the Middle East to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or, you know, or going to South Sudan and wading into the civil war. We're working at these things and other other avenues. I guess I would say it. Sure. Um, and that kind of brings me into another observation that I've had about New Community Project, which is that um, for an uh, organization that I think most people who are familiar with it know it as a environmentally focused organization, the mm -hmm. programming is incredibly human-centered from this single yeah. living 
uh, centers having an element of intentional community to them, uh, yes. to your learning tours, which obviously bring people together, uh, to your yes. approach um, with microfinance and with uh, individually engaging with individual stakeholders in different communities around the world. Yes. Um, yes. So why has that human-centered element um, been such an uh, been such a central part of new community projects model? Well, I mean, part of our motto is it's all about relationships. That we have to build these this new community. Well, we call, <laughs> we call ourselves new community project, man. And so we're trying to build the new community. And it's so many PM around the world. There's so many people that feel left out, and they feel like they're disenfranchised either economically or socially or racially or whatever it may be. And they go into these communities. I mean, just I was just in South Sudan. In fact, I was in Uganda meeting South Sudanese refugee women that we work with. And so many of them, a number of them said, you know, I felt all alone. You know, I'd been exiled from my country and I was here with my children. My husband's gone, dead or left me or something. I felt all alone. And I've found this new community because and we didn't really, you know, we didn't shape the new community. We provided grants to our partners there who organized these women and the women in coming to these places in this group, in this this, pro, this process, they find new community that they did not have before. And it's just life-giving. I mean, I just was reading, I'm reading this book right now. In fact, I've got it here on my table. I checked it out for my last long flight. I read a lot on flights. It's called The Overstory by Richard Powers. And one of the one of the stories in there is about a woman who did groundbreaking. Oh, that's a funny use of the word. Groundbreaking work on the roots of trees. And maybe you've read some about this, but how the roots of trees go down and connect to other roots and other fungi and all this stuff underground. And the forest is a living community. That we have to, you know, and we don't respect either the living community of God's creation or the need for community in human family. And so we're trying to reconstruct both of those. For our, And this is not just for, quote, their good. It's for our good. Boy, do we need to learn that lesson in the United States of America. I mean, you go places and you're... One of the one of the reasons we take these learning tours, and so there's a zillion reasons, but one of them is it brings people together in that group that are going to these places because we're off the grid often. You're with a bunch of people you didn't know before. You're at different age groups. You're different philosophies, but you're together for 10 days and you got to deal with it. And I find people can be on their best behavior for 10 days. <laughs> so how, somehow that holds together. But it also gives them a new idea of what it means to live in community because we are so atomized. In our society, we're all sitting in our own homes, watching our own stuff and playing our own games, even though we may be playing virtually with somebody else halfway around the world. That's kind of faux community, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to bring people together for on our learning tours, that, that group themselves, their relationship with the people that we're visiting or the environment like we were just in Denali to have this encounter with the caribou and the moose and the lynx and all that stuff. It brings you together with God's creation. So I think, you know, if we're going to make it in this world. We have to do everything we can to rebuild community. And when we, we have the luxury in the, in the rich world of not doing that. And so we're trying to break down those walls and rebuild a common structure, I guess, as a way to say it. So, so that's, um, I think that's, that's the human part. And the enlivened, I just tell you, when you go to visit these communities in other parts of the world, we're just in South Sudan, they, they said your, your organization is like our faithful parent. 
You come and see us every two years. I mean, you know, it's not like we're there every other week. You come and see us. And these are refugee women, many of them, or women in South Sudan who've been also been abandoned by their husbands and all this other stuff. So they're feeling, and then there's a war going on. Let's don't forget to mention that, and climate change kicking in in the region. And so they're feeling that that sense of solidarity is very important for them. And so, and for us to go and then to live and learn with them and to be inspired by their resilience in the face of so many challenges. I mean, it's just, it's just a blessing all around, honestly. And so that's why we focus on the human part. Wonderful. Um, so I'm glad that you brought up the learning tours again. Um, one of the not criticisms that I've ever heard about your learning tours, but that I've heard about that certain model of white Westerners going into places yeah. in the global South or the global East is yeah. kind of this mixed legacy of, of um, good intention colonialism where you go in and you do work that isn't necessarily what people want because you never bothered to ask what they do. Yeah. yeah. How, how do yeah. you take care with your learning tours uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen? Yeah. Well, we don't do any work to start with. I mean, occasionally, if we go to Lybrook, New Mexico on the Diné Reservation and our partner there says, hey, let's build some solar panels for this elderly couple, we're not going to stay. We're not going to do that. But our purpose to go there is to meet with the medicine woman or to meet with the healthcare worker or to meet with the, the Diné elder that's going to take us on the fracking tour so we can learn about their world and the challenges they face and what we have to gain from being a part of their world and how we can support what they're doing in their place. So that really is our modus operandi. I don't even know what that word means. But I guess our operating system is to find partners in places who are doing good work and find a way to support them in what they're doing. We're not there to do anything ourselves. I'm very hesitant to even – I mean, sometimes I will say to a partner in one part of the world, you know, over in this area, here's some things that we have been involved in. It's worked pretty well, but, you know, you know your situation here. So we are totally defer to the people we're working with. And they then make all the decisions about how programs are operated, about the philosophy of them, whatever. I mean, laws are doing the kinds of things that we have funds for. You know, we have certain – you can't do everything. So girls, women, reforestation, essentially. And if we find a reliable partner doing those things, we sort of entrust it to them. So we're – I remember our first time I went to El Salvador. We'd given some grants there for some women's projects. And they were very grateful. The pastor I was working with then was very grateful for this. It's going to make a difference in the end. It's the first time I'd ever been to the country. Well, as I'm going over there on the bus from Honduras or something, and by the way, that's another thing we do. We try to be with the people in terms of transportation and other things. You know, we've all met people who live in a hotel out of town and bust in in their van every day to do the work, whatever that work is. And how does that make the local people feel? You don't even want to stay with them or eat their food. Mm -hmm. So we really tried. So we're doing more and more busing in places around the world when we travel, because that's where the local people, that's how they get around. Anyway, back to my story. So uh, El Salvador, and the guy said, you know, we really, and so I talked to the pastor by phone before I arrived. He said, you know, we appreciate what you've done and make a big difference, but now I want you to think about what do we have to give you. Everybody's got something to give. And we rich world people think money is the name of the game. Well, it ain't the only name of the game. They have a lot to give us, too. And so we go into these situations with an open uh, open heart and open open eyes and open ears, listening and learning and feeling what they have to offer us as we together build a new community. And they, you know what? They know a lot about this. <laughs> they know a lot about all this. They know their situation, but they also know what it means to persevere in the midst of hardship, which we know very – you know, I mean, we all have our challenges. I'm not saying we don't have our challenges, but in the rest of the world, boy – 
there's no safety net if you're falling. And so they've figured out how to pick themselves up and go on with life. And we can learn from that. So um, I kind of forget what your question was. Oh, so how do we how do we not do that other thing? That's how we not do the other thing. Mm-hmm. We go with that attitude. Uh, we're going to go and receive as well as, you know, yeah, we, it's not that you, we don't have things to share. We do. In fact, my friend Tom was in Malawi. We were there last, I don't know, in May or something in Malawi, our first trip. And he continued to defer to the local people and the local knowledge that they had just to learn. Oh, and I'll tell you one other story. So we go down to the Amazon rainforest and speaking exactly of the thing you're talking about here in Ecuador, Christian missionaries and others have come in and had a huge detrimental effect on the local culture. And the people, not to mention the diseases that all of us brought in and the oil companies and all the mess they're making and all that stuff down there. But we've gone in and, you know, said you can't live like this anymore if you want to follow Jesus. Well, Jesus never, you know, that wasn't the way he did it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we've been working this this one particular community, a Kofan community that we've been visiting now for ever since we've been going. That's our first trip to Ecuador. It might have been 2004. Anyway, um, and when we first were going, our friends said, don't tell them that you're Christians. Because they have such a bad feeling about Christianity. Oh, my gosh. And for one thing, I want to tell them. I want to say not all Christians are like this. You know what I'm saying? I want to say there's another side to Jesus that you have not been shown. But uh, over the years, we've gone respectfully and, and spoke, learned from the shaman. We didn't tell the shaman or the shaman, any of them that we visit that you've got to change the way you're doing things, whatever. We Actually, we have so much to learn from these guys and their medicinal arts. We're going to need their medicine when our medicine turns on us, when the microbes figure out all our chemicals. You know, we're going to need plant-based medicine or whatever. Anyway, so we go there and we go with this one shaman, Aurelio, every year for the since 2004. And walking back to the forest, you see the big tree, the tree of spirits back there, the Seba. Well, his grandson, uh, about three or four years, who's 12 now, Victor, he's 12 now, but three or four years ago, you know, he was just a little kid. He was following us back through there. He'd dive off into the river to show off for us. I have a sequence of pictures I took of him that I brought back to him one other year, just to show him diving off the bank into the river. Well, this year we go back. He's dressed like a little grandpa. He's, he, his grandpa wears a blue thing and it's whatever. Victor's dressed just like that. And he says, you know, I, he told us, I'm thinking I want to be a shaman, too. Because of the respect you've shown my grandfather mm-hmm. and how you came here and you, you want to learn from him. And so, you know, these shamans, this traditional knowledge is at risk around the world because young boys want to go off and play video games. Mm-hmm. And to have one young kid in a community like that say, I want to do what my grandpa's doing because you showed him respect. I mean, you want, I'm not saying whether that's the only reason, but he said, he said that to us. Mm-hmm. He said, because you've shown him respect. And you, it's shown me that what he has to offer is valuable. You know, the rest of the world doesn't think this stuff is that valuable. Mm-hmm. Bolsonaro, the new president of Brazil, says wherever there's native people, there's riches under the ground. That's how they see native people as guardians of things he wants to get at. Mm-hmm. So we try to go and show it, have a different attitude. So let's talk a little bit about that other side of Jesus. Um, I know that New Community Project engages people of all faiths and no faiths and yeah. Um, in between, um, but certainly it was born out of um, that Church of the Brethren context that you brought with you. So how how does faith inform your work um, for the uh, environment yeah. and for people? Yeah. Well, Jesus was a radical social transformationalist. I mean, you know, we talk about, quote, his miracles and all this stuff. Well, every, you look at every almost everything he did had an edge to it. The people that he healed, working with women, working with children, with the outcast, 
healing on the Sabbath, challenging the rules in the name of, of people. I mean, everything he was just he was he was trying to change the system. And so he is our you know our role model, whether you're religious or not. If you read the Gospel of Luke, I think you're going to be inspired by this guy uh, because he was trying to he was challenging everything that got that separated people from God, that separated people put people from each other, that separated people from um, themselves in terms of their feeling of self worth, and also that separated people from the natural world. You know, he said you can't be consuming, consuming, consuming. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. I mean, he gave the natural world as an example for us, not as to exploit, but to model ourselves after. And so he's just, uh, you know, to me, I mean, personally, the most remarkable person in human history. Um, and so while we don't, um, you know, we don't beat that drum in school settings or college, because, you know, we, you can't really. And I'm not I'm not interested in talking about faith in those settings, but um, but. It is it is a driving I don't say a driving force, but it's a spiritual center, I guess, or the the moral center, maybe is a better way to put it as well, of how we see our world and our and and how we can be in it in a way that's respectful uh, and that is transformational. And you know, Jesus transformed people. I mean, you think I just in terms of experiential learning that a whole that little Zacchaeus thing, the guy, the tax collector up in the tree who's ostracized from his community. The thing he did was invite himself over for lunch and to have a conversation, led to transformation. And so we take you know, and also Jesus told stories. I mean, that was really his main teaching tool. And a lot of what we do is storytelling. And I don't mean just literally like you know the great storytelling mountain fest or something. I'm talking about just taking people to see life stories of people in other parts of the world, of the environment as it's struggling, uh, to hear stories through my you know I do a lot of as you probably had been cursed by having to sit through my slides and stories sometime to show pictures. And to tell stories, I think it has a it can have a profound effect on people. It puts the thing out there for people to make their own decision and respond in their own way. And so it's not like you're beating them over the head with information. You're saying, here's what we've seen. You can see it, too, if you go with us. Well, what are you going to do with this? And so the, the kind of transformational impact of storytelling and and images and uh, people's realities. And so that's another thing we take from Jesus, I guess you'd say. He's probably the most effective teacher in history uh, because of, of what he didn't do, <laughs> which was, you know, make people real memorize a new set of rules. He didn't, mm-hmm. which is, of course, dangerous. You give us rules. We know what we you know exactly what we've got to do. But he left it open ended so that the possibilities are endless. Not only for changing the world, but for changing ourselves, which, of course, is threatening because who wants to look at our society? We don't want to move off the path we're on. It would be way too inconvenient, too uncomfortable, all these other things. But Jesus gives us the opportunity to see this world differently. And that's what we're trying to do. Jesus helped people see things differently. We're trying to help people see things differently, including themselves. Right. So you said New Community Project has been around for 16 years now. That's correct. Uh, 2003 was our launch date. And so what do you see or hope for the next 16 years? <laughs> that we will survive and prosper. <laughs> not not and not for selfish reasons. I think we have something to offer. Yeah. I think we do things a little differently. And I find especially young people but lots of people find what we do compelling and for that reason I hope we continue. I don't have plans, you know, as you know already from what I've told you. We don't have a five-year plan. We don't have a one-year plan. We don't have a one-month plan. Uh, but we, we want to be open. I hope I hope we'll be open to whatever presents itself as what we need to do next. 
Uh, and I find that our network is supportive of that. I mean, you know, people realize that we're, we sometimes expand. Well, they, then they step up and help us do it. Uh, because I think people, um, they're looking for a way to invest themselves in something that matters. And I think new community project gives them a way to invest themselves in something that matters. And so I, for that, for that's another purpose. We offer, we give people that outlet for their energies, for their, for their, for their want to change the world and themselves. And then we also are doing good in, around the world, making, you know, I think we are doing, we're small but mighty, frankly. Not that we're doing huge amounts of things in terms of dollars or zillions of people, but in the places where we are involved, I think it makes an impact locally and globally. And so for those reasons, I hope we will survive and prosper. Well, I hope that our listeners um, have been inspired to hear about New Community Project and all that you've done and all that you hope to do. Um, so how can people who are listening along to this conversation get involved? Yeah, well, we've got a new website I'm so happy with because we were pretty archaic until about three weeks ago. So we have a new website. Check it out. There's a sign-up sheet there to get on the mailing list. Love to have you in our loop. We send out – we don't bombard people with stuff. We don't sell mailing lists to anybody else, but we will try to be faithful to you, people who get into our network to provide information about what we're up to, things that they can do, ways they can be involved, not just with us but also with life. Um, they can get on a learning tour. They can they can support our girl in a bike campaign. I and mean, we got these so many cool campaigns right now. The Million Tree Campaign. Over 10 years, we're hoping to plant a million trees. Not pretty sure we will. Uh, the Girl in the Bike Campaign. We were in Malawi. Girls have to walk seven miles to high school. These young women from rural Malawi. And so we could create a Girl in a Bike Campaign. Uh, so we've got lots of ways for people. We're trying to provide lots of entry points. And if people out there, young people that may be listening to this or old people too, I don't care, uh, if they've got ideas for us, send them our way. I mean, we're open. We're trying to be open to what we can do differently and better uh, for the good of, of the whole. And so, yeah. But, yeah, check out the website. Uh, check out Facebook page. Uh, we've even got Instagram, myself as the org- and the organization. All that information is on the website someplace. Um, yeah. So those are some ways, uh, some opportunities. And that website address is newcommunityproject.org. Yes, sir. All right. Well, David Radcliffe, thank you so much. Emmett, thank you so much. And I appreciate, I really appreciate the good work you guys are doing to get the word out about things that people might find interesting and promising for themselves and for our world. Thank you, David, for kicking off our series. Over the next few episodes, we will continue to hear from people involved with the New Community Project as staff members, volunteers, affiliates, and more. Until then, I hope you start to think about how you have a role in climate change. How have you contributed to it? What stake do you have in the impacts of it? And what role can you play in acting to stop it? This is a justice issue, and that means it's a faith issue too. So where is your faith leading you on climate change? Thank you so much for listening. The Dunker Punks podcast is produced by a team of contributors who are committed to sharing stories of faith and justice. I'm Emma Lukowski Eldred, one of your co-hosts. Jacob Krauss edits the show and creates our music. Carrick Van Azalt creates graphics for the show. Dean Fiesenheyer transcribes our episodes. Suzanne Lay manages production. Arlington Church of the Brethren hosts and sponsors the show. And On Earth Peace provides ongoing outreach and production support. You can find our archives on iTunes and online at arlingtoncob.org slash dpp. Connect with the show on social media at Dunker Punk's Pod 
or by emailing us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. Please tune in for our next episode in two weeks. Thank you.